Welcome to The Deep Dive. I'm your host, Philip McKenzie. I'm an anthropologist strategist with a focus on culture and humanity-centered design. I'm Brooklyn-born and Brooklyn-made. Every week, I will bring you guests from a wide variety of backgrounds who, despite their different areas of expertise, share traits in common. They aim high, push boundaries, and make things happen. Their experiences drive insights. On today's episode of The Deep Dive, I'm joined by Tim Jackson. Tim is an ecological economist and writer. Since 2016, he has been director of the Center for the Understanding of Sustainable Prosperity at the University of Surrey in the UK, where he's also professor of sustainable development. From 2004 to 2011, he was economics commissioner for the UK Sustainable Development Commission, where his work culminated in the publication of Prosperity Without Growth which has subsequently been translated into 17 foreign languages. It was named as a Financial Times Book of the Year in 2010 and Unheard's Economics Book of the Decade in 2019. His latest book, Post-Growth, Life After Capitalism, was published in 2021. In 2016, he was awarded the Hillary Laureate for Exceptional International Leadership in Sustainability in addition to his academic work, Tim is an award-winning dramatist with numerous radio writing credits for the BBC. So after that very awesome introduction, I want to welcome Tim to the Deep Dive. How are you? I'm good, Philip. Thank you for having me on. So I'm going to spend most of our time kind of going through generally the details of post-growth life after capitalism. Mm. That's the work that I've spent most of my time on most recently in preparation for this conversation. And Clearly, it's part of an ongoing conversation that has been existing around what are our economic structures going to look like as it pertains to our surviving on this planet, Mm. to put it in very plain terms. Mm. And when I say our, I'm talking about human beings. I'm never overly concerned about the planet, which might sound weird to those who are really into sustainability. But my estimation is that the planet is always going to be here. We might not be on it, but the planet will be just fine. Mm. So let's talk about like our survival and the economic and social and cultural models that exist around that. So having said that, I want to start with this idea of growth and how you define it as a a mythology, Mm. a story that we tell ourselves. So how do you think about how we understand the myth of growth? Well, I suppose I was drawn to it really by actually by the work I've done in sustainability and and thinking about environmental issues and kind of always coming up against the response from government, almost like a resistance really, and from economists and from business people also to a certain extent that, you know, we can't afford to protect the environment. We can't afford to do the things actually that would help us survive on the planet because it might have some impact on economic growth. So I suppose that was my kind of introduction to it, if you like, that the economic growth, the the increase in the gross domestic product, the GDP, so drives our societies that it becomes almost like a kind of religious mantra. And when you listen to political dialogue, you can kind of hear it that there's a it's almost like you have to pay homage to this idea that whatever you do, don't worry, because it's not going to touch economic growth. And a lot of my early work sort of 
took that for granted as well. I even played into it sometimes, I think, early on, you know, doing creating models saying, look, you can reduce your carbon so much, but it won't even affect your growth. And then I began to realize how pervasive it is, how you get that response all the time that growth is what we need, growth is what matters, growth is what progress is about, growth is the basis of our economy. And it's at that point when you begin to listen to that dialogue that you realize it's more than a rational argument. It's actually something that's gone deeper into our culture. And that's the sense, I suppose, in which I'm talking about it as a myth, because it's those myths, those stories we tell about ourselves, tell ourselves about ourselves. It's those myths and stories that kind of define our culture for us. And I think that's the status that this idea of growth has now in our society. And it's very pervasive. And in a way, I'm not knocking myths because I think they're important. They help us to make sense of our lives and our world. But when they begin to go wrong, for example, when the economy is so big that it is really trashing the underlying basis for its own success in the future, when that starts to happen, that's when you know the myths themselves are not the right ones anymore. Even though they're really still very, very powerful, we have to start with that task of kind of questioning them and constructing different myths. In having my notes, I take all these kind of random notes and have them all all over the place. And when I wrote down, you know, understanding this myth and thinking about growth, then it, it, it got me into thinking about what fuels the myth. Like what are some of the underlying ideas that have made this particular myth and others so pervasive. And I was curious as to, is the myth sort of tied to our own, the way we have centered ourselves in the world that we live in to the extent that all of these problems as presented, we will solve them just because we've always solved them. What I'm trying to get at is the myth of growth tied to our own vision of ourselves as either infallible beings able to solve everything? Yeah, very definitely. I mean, it's it's really weird. And this is, I think, when you realize you're dealing with something that's deep and cultural and mythical in its status is that it ties itself everywhere. So it sort of ties itself to our sense of infallibility, our sense of some people think we're infallible, but at the very least, we think we're clever and we think we're ingenious and we think we're good at technology. And to some extent, that's true. You know, I'm not denying that altogether, but it's tied to that belief of how ingenious we are in solving kinds of problems. But it also draws some legitimacy from a completely different place, which is kind of people looking to nature and saying, well, you know, in nature, everything grows. Growth is a law of life. And so, let's model our economies on nature, let's model our progress on nature, and therefore we want to grow as well. So the myth begins to draw its legitimacy from all kinds of different places, that sense of our divine purpose almost on a planet, right down to our supremacy in a, a natural world, and the sense that the growth is also natural in the natural world. Those kinds of senses of why growth is important we talk about even in non-economic ways, we talk about spiritual growth and we talk about growth of knowledge and we talk about 
growth of creativity. And, and so we appropriate this myth at a deep level across all of our cultural conversations. And it's almost impossible to untangle which of those is the dominant one, you know, which came first, if you like, um, because they are now so powerfully kind of intertwined with each other. And we think of our own progress, our social progress, in terms of that overriding concept of growth. And, you know, it's interesting that the natural world does become a proxy for a lot of these ideas. But even in that framing, we are separating ourselves from the natural world, but we inhabit the Mm. natural world. And so we're placing a primacy on ourselves within a system that we are a part of, and then using that system to sort of back into our behavior. Like there is growth within the natural world. I mean, we can see it, but it is also, you know, from my perspective, cyclical. It is longer time horizon yeah. than than what we're talking about. Like, you know, I spent time in California this summer and before the latest round of fires. And, you know, high growth complex forests have been there for hundreds of years, mm. right? They're not something that can, it's not a product mm. launch is my point. So it still feels that our examples from the natural world are missing some understanding of how the natural world exists. I think that's absolutely right. There is, of course, growth in the natural world, but actually things don't tend to grow forever. They tend to kind of reach a level of maturity. And then actually, we don't like to think about this so much, they decay and decline. Or you get those extraordinary species like the ones you're talking about. And just near, very near where I live, actually, there's this extraordinary yew tree that is thousands of years old which is just like mind-blowing but when you look at this thing it hasn't got bigger and bigger it's got wilier and wilier it's this gnarled up kind of beast of a tree that's sitting there sort of almost laughing at how temporary the human species is watching them come and go and come and go and it's not about that physical material expansionary growth at all so And that's what I mean by, in a way, that we've appropriated those metaphors, but we've, in doing so, we've kind of transformed them for our own purposes. Grace is in nature, so it must be natural, so the economy needs to grow, and that's what we should be doing. Without really thinking, as you say, about how that works in nature. And, you know, at the beginning of the book, you highlighted a speech, I think fairly early on in Robert Kennedy's run for the Democratic nomination. You know, obviously, as history has told us, that bid for... It was the day after he'd announced he was going to run it. It was actually, well, his first and second campaign speeches in Kansas on the 18th of March, 1968. And, you know, I'm a big Kennedy file, just sort of generally, and Robert Kennedy in particular. So whenever I see RFK in a text, particular text like this, I think it's important to highlight that. And in the speech that you mentioned, he's in his address, he starts to talk about how we measure things and getting what I'm going to clarify, simplify is like, how do we get to the cost of the economics that we're in, the system that we've constructed? And I want to give you an opportunity to kind of talk more about that. Because it it reminded me of also another famous address, which is 
Eisenhower's address as he's leaving the presidency and he coins, mm -hmm. at least popularly coins, the military industrial complex. And that is something that is kind of entered the zeitgeist. And he talks about the cost of for every missile you build, for every tank or whatever the exact examples were like it is hmm. the cost of that are schools not built and people going hungry and all these kind of things and i wonder if there's a through line in that thinking like the obvious bridge between eisenhower hmm. and rfk's nomination runners is obviously his brother and lyndon johnson yeah but i think there's some ideological connection there and so i'd be curious your thoughts on that and then why have we in a popular perspective and now i'm talking about like heads of state and things like that lost that type of language like i think we'd be mm. hard pressed to find leaders pretty much anywhere mm. to be as eloquent one mm. yeah or no, as i absolutely get i two. get so a lot no in, i get the question because i i found it absolutely fascinating as well <laughs> i came across that little fragment of speech about the gdp when i was working you know, up to my eyeballs and the statistics of the GDP and trying to figure out what was missing and whether you could cost what was missing and whether you could come up with a better measure. That speech has always been like a kind of poster speech for me. But when I started writing the book, when I started writing Post-Growth, it occurred to me the first time to ask where did it come from? What was its legacy? Why was someone who wanted to be president of the most powerful nation on the earth that was growing at about 4 or 5% at that point in time, per year why would they begin to question that measure and what where did it come from and i i was lucky enough to talk to um well a couple of people really one was his daughter kerry kennedy we shared a platform an event on the anniversary of his death a, a few years ago and then the other was one of his speech writers that i managed to track down so sort of eyewitnesses to that day and, well, Adam Walensky, the speechwriter, was an eyewitness. I mean, Kerry obviously was kind of very small at that point and at home, but eyewitnesses to the man, if you like, and the values of the man. And it was just, you know, to me, a point at which I began to realize that he was talking about the GDP and about growth and about limitations of that and about costs, but he was also talking about values in a very deep way, the values that motivate society, the values that give us a sense of ourselves and of, of our, our place in the world, the values through which we relate to each other, and drawing, you know, drawing a kind of humaneness into that speech that that really did fascinate me. And I think I'm still not entirely sure where it all came from, but there was a lot of there was an influence at that time, a kind of countercultural influence in America at that time that was driven, you know, partly by the civil rights movement, partly by the resistance to the Vietnam War, and partly by a kind of sense that the direction of that military industrial complex was taking society away from its values in, in the wrong direction. And Adam Belinsky was very forthright about this. You know, he said these were the values of this man. And that was the best time of my life when I was working for this man because he held those values. And he, his presidential campaign was unlike 
presidential campaigns at that time, he would basically go around the country talking to people, bantering with them off the back of a train with crowds around him, kind of having a go at him because his hair was longer than it was supposed to be for a politician, this kind of thing. And there was a sense and the way that he used, for example, the way he used language, the way he used poetry, the way he instilled his speeches with a sense of humanity, that's the thing that came out of out of that sort of deeper exploration of that speech for me. And I began to realize that actually, as you say, the poster speech of the GDP, that was the least of it, really. The depths of that, the values, the political and social values that that politician held at that time have become a very, very rare commodity. I mean, I'd like to think, you know, when I was writing this, Trump was president and at that point, they looked so far from the values of the US president that you could almost not believe how far we traveled along that journey towards politicians without kind of social values, without that sense of underlying humanity. And then now, of course, you know, Joe Biden's in the presidency. It's a very, very different place. Is it a little bit closer to those values of humanity and connection to nature and equality? Yes, I think it is. But it's still a kind of perilous journey, it feels like to me. It feels like, certainly when I look at my own country and the leadership that we have here, that it's an almost cynical politics, which will do almost anything to manipulate society in its own interests and values in its own interests. And the losing of that underlying social value, I think, is you know, it's tragic. In, this, in a sense, it could be our biggest you know, that could be the biggest bear pit, that could be the biggest trap waiting for us as we navigate the kind of difficult future in relation to climate change, a difficult future in relation to loss of biodiversity, difficult future in relation to the pandemic, all kinds of things. But the biggest casualty, in a sense, I think, would be that sense of values that RFK really brought to the table in that campaign. And you mentioned the cynicism that you know, there seems to be this, it's in the UK, I think it's pretty widespread in the industrialized North, the West, whatever we want to use to kind of classify those nations. And then that cynicism sort of goes downhill um, or flows downhill. Is the cynicism part of the growth story in a way that work our way out of it so we got to just figure it out <laughs> i think maybe it is i think there's a couple of aspects of that that i think are really important at least and one of them is that instinctively i think there is a a distrust of this growth story it's the dist and actually you know it spills out onto the streets occasionally in this in the book i tell the story of this when we were going through brexit in the uk our big split with the European Union and the politicians came along to people trying to actually at that point trying to keep us together in Europe and prevent this split from happening and there's this one apocryphal story of an economist who turns up at a public meeting and says listen guys just think of the impact that this is going to have on growth the GDP and then this woman just shouts it's your bloody GDP it's not ours the story of growth is not trusted and that lack of trust in the story of growth and particularly by people who don't benefit from it, looking at, in fact, it being told by people who do benefit from it, that's a cause of great distrust. And that distrust is a seedbed for cynicism as well. And then 
at the other end of that spectrum, there is also, and it's drawn again from nature, a story that nature is all about struggle. It's all about competition. All doing is struggling for our existence. So don't pretend you're any better than me because that's all there is. And if that's all there is, then compete and struggle as fast as you can, get as far as you can so that you are not the one that's suffering. You're the one that's succeeding in that struggle. And that is a desperately divisive metaphor. It pits us all against each other as endless competitors in the struggle for existence. And it's a very powerful corrosive of social values because it it literally is kind of saying there's a zero-sum game. I can win, but only at the expense of other people. And therefore, I want to be a winner and not a loser in this game. So devil take the highmost. You guys can go wherever you go, fall by the wayside, lose your livelihoods. It doesn't matter because I'm succeeding. And that as a set of values has become stronger and stronger, I think, in our society. And and it is driven by capitalism for its own ends because capitalism could not succeed without inculcating those values in society. So we've become the people that capitalism needs us to be in order for capitalism to succeed as a system. And that's devastating. And it's a really dangerous position for society to be in. In, I definitely agree that capitalism seems to be like the uber myth. It's the one that kind of powers and drives all the others. And it, I loathe to talk about it in this way because I feel hmm. like in some ways, like I give this thing so much power, right? And But I feel like, you know, it's something we've created, like Ursula Le Guin says, right? Like we've created it so we can create mm-hmm. something else, right? We once believed in the divine right of kings. We no longer believe in that, right? So we can change our belief systems, but there is a component of the mm-hmm. basic thoughts of capitalism mm-hmm. that I got to admit this motherfucker is resilient, right? Like it seems to have a way <laughs> to like, even when I think it's done, it rebrands itself or it takes a different form or we call it yeah. like generative or mm. any number of different words we sort of attach to it to suggest that we're going to do it better. Right. So how do we wrestle with understanding its resilience without giving it the power of like inevitability as well? Mm. Yeah, that's a really interesting question. I mean, I really like that idea, that Ursula Le Guin idea that, you know, we build our ideas off the ideas of the past and capitalism is is an idea of the past. I don't think that necessarily means that that's all about that kind of marginal transformation or putting an adjective in front of capitalism like responsible capitalism or sustainable capitalism or green capitalism. To me, that is that part of social change that happens when an old belief system is reaching the end of its life. And the philosopher of science, Thomas Kuhn, used to call that auxiliary hypotheses. And the main hypothesis of the theory is kind of a little bit shaking at the edges. And so you prop it up with an auxiliary hypothesis, and it does the job for a while. Even capitalists, and this was another of the kind of really interesting starting points of the book in the way, were beginning to say capitalism as we know it is dead. So Mark Benioff from Salesforce 
for example, standing up at Davos in the beginning of 2020 saying capitalism as, as we know it is dead. And then, of course, it's long live the new generation of capitalism. It's adapting itself, trying to adapt itself. But I do see that all as really this kind of Kuhnian idea of of auxiliary hypotheses, things that happen at the edge of a paradigm shift just before the new thing emerges. But your question is kind of deeper than that in a way. Your question is about how do we look for that new space where these new ideas are emerging without giving power to the dysfunctionality of the old one. And I think for me, that's almost exactly what I was trying to do in post-growth in a way was to kind of turn and face the beast if you like not in a you've done bad all your life and you're obviously evil so we're going to slay you kind of way but almost the opposite of that looking at it and say how are we implicated in that what were the stories that we told ourselves to believe that that was good and which other stories could we tell because it's only really by sort of going beneath the surface of capitalism and asking about its stories, like that story of the myth that we're all in competition because life is one big struggle for survival, looking at that and saying, is that the only way you could tell that story? And then finding, and this to me is quite remarkable in a way, that a philosophy as completely different from capitalism as you could imagine, the philosophy behind Buddhism, starts in exactly that same place that life is about suffering and that it's inevitable in our world and it goes in a completely different direction whereas capitalism kind of says life is about suffering it's all about struggle be as competitive as you can make sure you're not the one that's left behind buddhism says no that is the craving for things that are unsustainable that will do damage to society and to yourself the root is completely diametrically opposite is to turn towards suffering to face it to understand it to show compassion to those who suffer and in doing so to free ourselves from it and it's just you know that's an example of how i think we confront the beast without channeling its power even further and you know sometimes maybe in a sympathetic one let's admit capitalism has helped us make progress in certain things capitalism has helped us to improve the material conditions of the lives of millions of people in the world and yet still to accept that it is underlying all that is a difficult dysfunctional picture that has shifted our nature driven us towards cynicism and is destroying the planet i love the example that you brought up about buddhism and kind of starting in a place and ending in a different mm -hmm. place and it brings me back to the RFK comment and you're citing like the counterculture movement at the time that was also springing up. And I'm going to connect that a little bit to, again, ideas and how we grab onto the mythologies of different things and we use them. And again, maybe this is my own cynicism, right? That I find mm -hmm. like capitalism is good at taking those ideas. Like for example, wellness, right like the the wellness industry has mm. like taken off and i feel like it's like running as like a capitalist conduit right that if i meditate and mm. the things that we should be using to make our lives better is actually being used to make mm. me like a better consumer right like if i just get like my right yoga mat and i get my lululemon and i get my this and i get my that and i signify mm. this 
fuzzy idea of wellness then I'll be able to do the calories yeah. better. <laughs> right? I, I mean, uh, like, yeah, I get the point. If I, rested, I mean, I do think I'll be able to just be a better hustler. <laughs> so I suppose my answer to that, in a way, would be two things. One is, if we look at human history, there's never been a kind of form of civilization that's gone on forever and ever. Capitalism is a historically contingent moment in time, and it will pass. It might not pass in my lifetime or in your lifetime, but it will pass. And so that in itself motivates you to think about what might come afterwards. And the other thing I think that is really important when you're engaged in this task of looking at, at our own society, you know, looking in the mirror and asking who are we and how did we get here, is to get to the particular structures within that system that make it so resilient. And I think that's very clear, both make it resilient, but also make it potentially dysfunctional and I, I think in capitalism that that's clear it's not a sort of amorphous beast which is just a set of beliefs it's actually laid down in a way that the structure of our economy works and in particular the relationships between labor people's working lives and capital the earning of income from the owning of things the way that those relationships are coded into our society are very precise. They have been laid down over decades in order to reinforce certain kinds of power structures. And actually, in the process, they've disadvantaged other people. So, you know, the people who get disadvantaged in that are actually ordinary people working in very, very essential jobs like healthcare and education and social care and the provisioning of our stores and the selling of goods and the distribution of the things that keep us alive. And to me, that was one of the most extraordinary things about our recent experience was understanding that the people who saved our lives quite literally during the pandemic were the left behind. They were the people that capitalism had systematically forgotten about, not by some sort of ideological sense that they weren't important, but by a structure right inside the middle of capitalist economics that was driving two different parts of society away from each other, creating a kind of two-tiered society. Those ones were providing for the nurturing our lives, really literally kind of the only people who were keeping us alive. And then the other people who were making their wealth by rent-seeking off all kinds of ownership of all kinds of assets, which they then traded amongst themselves to get even richer. And that's to articulate it in that way, I think, is to begin to understand where those changes have to occur. And when you think about the depth of those changes, they're not like putting an adjective in front of capitalism. They're actually like dismantling the underlying structures and reforming them in a way that protects value in our society. So it's a, it's a parallel task to that that we were talking about before of recovering value in a human way but actually also instilling that value in our institutions, in our incentive structures, in our markets, in the way that we relate to each other, the way that finance operates, the way that investment happens, really doing that hard graft of building a different kind of system. I'm glad you mentioned the pandemic and the way in which we think of who is essential and who's not essential. And I'm often asked to speak about things like future of work, which is a very popular topic and 
I remember being asked in a, in a panel, like, oh, what have we learned from the pandemic? And, you know, my not so appreciated answer was absolutely nothing. Right. And then, you know, kind of, it's kind of spun mm-hmm. out from there, but we're faced with now labor front and center again, as people talk about this so-called great resignation and people leaving jobs or shifting how the workplace looks. And so I want to couple those ideas of this so-called labor shortage, great resignation with our performative way in which we talked about essential workers, but have we changed the way we treat, operate, and focus on those things that are truly essential? Like, is there some connectivity between those things? No. No, absolutely. I mean, we haven't yet. We haven't. That was a, such a profound lesson to have learned. And, you know, these moments where I think in your country and in mine, you know, we would stand on our doorsteps and our balconies and applaud the frontline workers for their efforts in saving our lives. And yet, you know, a matter of months later, in my country at least, nurses' pay was up for review and they were offered a pay rise that was less than the rate of inflation. So essentially being asked to kind of take a pay cut. And it's just, you know, the extraordinary disparity of those two moments, understanding, it does emphasize that it's a, we can see it through the pandemic, but we have not yet learned those lessons. And I do think that that is in part, at least because we have not done that structural work of understanding exactly how that happened those people who were the most important in our lives were given the lowest status in society, the least secure livelihoods in society, and in many cases also bore the brunt of the pandemic in society. So that's something that I feel we're still kind of in the middle of it in a sense. But I still think, you know, to me, that is that fight should be for me as important as the Occupy movement was after the financial crisis, because it it is about that same sort of sense of social justice and its critical dysfunctionality in the existing system. So being able to, you know, keep that conversation alive is really, really important. But I think as you were talking there, Philip, you kind of also, you talked about that kind of performative aspect of work. And I think maybe this is a way back into the value of work for me, because I became the work that I was doing 10 years ago that you talked about at the beginning, the work around prosperity without growth. I mean, work was one of our themes and the nature of prosperity was one of our themes. And one of the earliest findings was that central to our prosperity in a broader sense of the term is our ability to participate in society. How do we participate in society? Many of us, first and foremost, through our working lives, So a great resignation is not just a resignation from from work itself. It's a resignation from our own prosperity, a prosperity that can only be achieved through that kind of participation in society. And in the same sense as it's tragic to see that happening, it's also a kind of avenue of hope in a sense, or optimism at least, that in giving up on the idea of work, we're actually giving up on something that could improve the quality of our lives and our sense of self and our sense of meaning and purpose and indeed our hope for the future and by reclaiming that reclaiming that right to work that right to participate we're not just talking about livelihoods we're talking about 
real deep lasting satisfactions almost the best that we can hope to achieve in our lives is that sense of participating in society and to me it's the grounds for again for a sort of you know a resistance both an external resistance to the factors that are degrading the quality of work and an internal resistance to resigning ourselves to that future because it's something worth fighting for i love how you've made this like a fertile ground for resistance and perhaps even for telling a different story because i know here in the united states as there's been again the so-called work shortage and and we're also at this moment that we're recording this have a record number of workers that have gone on strike at various places within the united states so there's a lot going on on lab, in the labor mm -hmm. world um <laughs> to, to be encouraged by but to get back to where I was going originally, the way in which a lot of this great resignation has been framed here in the United States, and I'll only use the United States, is that, well, the benefits that we gave folks to get through the pandemic were too high, clearly, because people are choosing benefits and public assistance and these kind of pandemic programs to work, right? So they're, mm. the social frames, which weren't enough anyway, are being presented as the counter to people working. So although I don't believe that, that is true, I'm wondering if there's a way to talk about what we're choosing to opt into versus mm -hmm. what we're choosing to not opt, opt into because the work isn't just the paycheck, right? It's the exactly. psychological, it's the, the social safety, it's the connectivity is a bunch of these different things. So can we use some of that to write a story before the lunatics on our side, <laughs> the conservatives, frame this as a, as a social benefit challenge? I, absolutely, we can. You know, I believe that fervently, but I also, I'm kind of, I've been around enough that I've heard that story so many times. You know, I remember it even back in the 1970s, 80s, when Thatcher was prime minister, that kind of story of sponges and scroungers and people taking a free lunch because they could, there is a completely different story to tell about all the people who through the pandemic gave up certain freedoms in order to volunteer in their communities to save people's lives and to support people in the community, doing whatever I can. You know, the principal response through the pandemic was not how can I first of all, keep me away from this lurgy so that I don't get infected. And then next, how can I benefit from it? There were people who did that without a doubt, but a much greater response was a kind of community response, a response of people pulling together, a response of people asking, what can I do? And, you know, I think that was entirely genuine. There's no doubt that when you give huge contracts to your mates, in the context of a tragic pandemic and they get very rich off the back of it, there's no doubt that there's that greedy, avaricious side within the human psyche that if you let it run riot, will destroy the fabric of our lives. But there's also no doubt that this other story, this story of meaning and participation and the wanting to help and social agency, that that was there wherever you looked in society and in these in these community volunteer programs in the health service itself in the ordinary day-to-day -day interactions that people had on the street those were values that are a real they are an object lesson to us they tell us that we are not entirely the people that capitalism tries to persuade us that we are 
there is an altruistic side to us. There is a, a side that's about solidarity. There's a side that wants agency as well as a decent livelihood. And that's a really, you know, that's that's a huge resource, I think, for telling a different story. It seems like there's at times an imagination gap that the social contract as written, this industrial age story that are all tied to growth and capitalism in the ways we've been having this conversation, you know, the imagination capture is that we can't, we're talking about all these things within like the usual dichotomy, right? Like if you're confronting capitalism, then you're a communist or a socialist, right? And if you're, so it's like you're trapped in this like Marx versus everybody yeah. else continuing mm. cycle mm. for the past hundred plus years of that, right? So I'm really keen on how do we break out of that dichotomy? And I'm simplifying it as a dichotomy. I know there's lots of different ups and downs to both those worlds mm. to get into a different type of imagination. Because I find, and maybe you've encountered this, if I talk to friends who are, and I'm like, look, capitalism fucking sucks. And, you know, I'm not as, you know, I'm not being my, as eloquent as I'm, I'm being now, right? I'm just kind of talking mm. to my friends and I'm like, yeah, man, that shit's some bullshit, right? And we, started, we were just chatting. <laughs> Everyone says like, well, you know, mm. what do you got that's better, right? Mm. Like it's always like, if you don't have like a fully formed right. playbook as to what replaces it, it dismisses your argument, right? So I want to get into like the imagination capture of that and how we yeah. push through that piece of the conversation. Yeah. I mean, I think one thing is being honest about it. Let's pretend that dichotomy was accurate. There's <laughs> capitalism on one side and there's communism on the other side. And communism means huge state control and huge state control means less freedom in your life. And that really sucks. In so far as we can be critical of capitalism for all sorts of reasons, we do have to, I think, be realistic about those alternatives. And they did somehow, the, the structure of them created forms of totalitarianism that were repressive and that actually in some cases genocidal and in other cases just enormously repressive of the human spirit and i think it's really important to ask where that went wrong why it happened and it's not an easy question to answer i mean it isn't as obvious as well the state had all this power so you have none actually the state could use that power to give you certain kinds of freedoms and in some of those states those communist states it did that for example greater freedoms in education education really thrived under communism and particularly in the soviet era and was something that was really taken seriously and people's opportunities in it were taken seriously and people's support for it was taken seriously so that when the iron curtain fell for example and you looked at the unification of east and west germany people who'd previously been in east germany had understood the values of that support system and it's particularly in relation to education they saw actually that they weren't getting the same value out of capitalism which was putting other values forwards so there were values in that system but there were also faults in that system you know one of the things that had to happen again just taking the case of of Germany is that Germany, you know, the country was split in two and a wall was built down the middle. And one side of it was giving all these glossy adverts for its own freedoms and its cornucopia of material wealth and how everything's wonderful. And the other side was trying to protect the political system 
almost under siege from capitalism itself. And so it turned itself, turned society on itself as a set of telltales. You have to tell on your citizens if they are behaving in this way, which is now outlawed because we are not capitalists, we are anti-capitalism, we're in a different kind of society. And so that repressive nature of totalitarian governments actually has its origins in a survival strategy gone wrong in a way. And so what we have to do when we think about whatever our next incarnation is, we have to be aware of those survival strategies gone wrong, things that might have had wonderful, you know, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. There may have been good intentions. And when you go back to Marx, the intentions are actually still quite laudable. When you look at how it played out in totalitarian communism, they are completely dystopian and they undermine the fabric of that society. So our search is, you know, our search for something after capitalism has to be as aware of the failings of those oppositions to capitalism as it is of the failings of capitalism. We have to be looking for, we have to be looking for ways of organizing society that are not exactly immune because it's it's never entirely possible to be immune from unintended consequences in which we can be aware of them and we can be aware of the dangers and the pitfalls on both sides of the fence. And I think, I mean, I don't know if this is where you are heading, Philip, or not, but one of the things that you said, you know, right at the beginning of that question was about the failure of the imagination. And I think, again, you know, that failure of the imagination is, is not so much a failure of imagination as a capture of the imagination. We have become the people that capitalism needed us to be. And we've done that by playing on certain kinds of values in the human psyche and punishing certain other values in the psyche. And so when I think about this transition, you know, one of the ways I think about it is that it is a task of the imagination. It's a task of for vision and it's a task of creativity. And what we desperately need, I think, in order to, to help us think our way through this transition are those creative spaces, those imaginative spaces, those spaces where we can tell different stories and try out different things and play games around it rather than just thinking logically through it and tell talk about poems and literature and the task of the imagination the work of art if you like and that in itself is it doesn't tell you exactly where we're going but it gives you that imaginative space to go beyond those simple dichotomies Absolutely. You know, I'm keeping a careful eye on the time and I'm going to ask one other question and then we're going to just do the final segment of the show, which is to drop where both of us kind of recommend something for our listeners. We'll skip off the dome in interest of time because I'd rather get this question in than do off the dome. So sure. this final question is tied to the idea of limits, which you talk about quite eloquently in the book. And I sense this at least for me as a reader, there was like, I understood the idea of limits. I also believe in general that our living systems are abundant, though mm. not infinite, right? So I'm trying mm. to make some mm. distinctions around words that are used somewhat interchangeably. Mm. And limits can feel when we're tied to that sort of, like you said, we're clever, can feel as if we're we're stopping our own cleverness. So I wanted mm. to give you an idea, give you an opportunity to kind of talk about how we manage through some of those ideas of 
what's limited, what's not, because I feel like it's so much a part of the myths yeah. that are running through here. And then we'll get to the drop. <laughs> sure. Yeah. I mean, yeah, no, I'm glad to have a chance to talk about that because to me, it's really important. I mean, I think, you know, I come from a scientific place which respects that there are certain kinds of limits. But I also, under the, the, the sort of metaphor in a way that I use in the book, and I think personally I aspire to or I believe in as well, is that it's a wonderful quote by the conservationist Wendell Berry that human and earthly limits properly understood should not be seen as constraints or confinement, but as invitations to greater meaning and purpose in recognizing, and there is something cathartic in recognizing ourselves as materially limited, limited in the finite space of our life on earth, which we never know how long that's going to be or not. And yet through that, through that lens of those limits, having a specter, having a, a vision which can nonetheless be unlimited, which can be ingenious, which can be creative. And it was one of the themes that I really, as the book developed and as I was writing, it became very, very important because it it began to kind of occur to me in a sense that, that capitalism, in peddling the idea that there are no limits, had posed limits, had created limits on the human potential. And so that we think of ourselves, you know, in human terms as basically, or we become in human terms, basically consumers at the service of this capitalism that is as dysfunctional as we see it or as successful as we see it, but is nonetheless a particular way of being human. And I was very drawn to some of these psychological ideas that I talk about in the book about, you know, the highest states of human experience, the state of flow, of peak experience, of of a sense of being at one with the world and at one with the tasks that you're engaged in. And it's something that resonates with me personally for because it's something that I've tracked, I would say, since I was a child, that there are certain kinds of human experiences that rise above the ordinary and that produce a kind of sense which goes beyond psychological well-being. It is a kind of immersion in the world. And it gradually began to dawn on me that capitalism's biggest crime in a way is that it has reduced our expectations and indeed our abilities of ever achieving that, that higher human potential. And it's a firm belief to me, actually, as I develop those ideas, that there is an extraordinary human potential that is just mostly untapped because we've given our way, we've given away our, our higher values and our higher sense of our own potential to immediate gratifications and material pleasures. And it's by recognizing the limits of those gratifications and pleasures that we return ourselves to a path that sees us aspire to and achieve these higher states of human potential. Yeah, I, we are in complete agreement on so many things. And I think that's a perfect way for us to go out because it leaves with a promise or at least i, I think it is way. a promise it's really yeah. it's really important to me that post growth is not a book about you know the dire straits of capitalism it's a book about the richness of the land that lies beyond yeah absolutely the book is great i highly recommend it and i'm glad i, I went through it in anticipation of this conversation as promised I want to get to the final segment of the show, which is the drop. And the drop is just a recommendation for our listeners. It can be anything at all. So I have a drop and I'll go first because mine is, is pretty simple. I'm a person, those who know me, 
constantly, constantly reading and looking and searching for things. And I came across a magazine called Emergence Magazine, and I picked it up. Like I have the volume two right like on the side of me right over here. And it's just a collection of essays and thoughts and, you know, I had to order it and it's kind of big and chunky, you know, at a time when we're not supposed to buy paper things and everyone wants things that are digital. It's none of those things. So it's actually an antithesis of, of something you have to spend time with and go through. And, mm. you know, it's, it's just, a, I found it to be really fascinating because it's not like a typical magazine where like everything is in this perfectly linear way. It just a bunch of different ideas and thought starters. And I thought it's very nicely designed and it's kind of big and chunky. So mm. emergence magazine is my drop for okay. our listeners. Go to their website, poke around, check it out. And it might resonate with you in a way that mm. resonated with me. So your drop. Yeah. Interesting. One of the interesting things about Postgres was the, the range that over time of the insights that I was able to draw on the sort of wisdom of the ages and the wisdom of the sages, I suppose, those people who have provided us with a resource that is still there, sometimes thousands of years later. And so the one that struck me, I suppose, probably more than more than any other was, was Lao Tzu, who was a Chinese uh, sage philosopher back in you know, two and a half thousand years BC. And his writing is just has this kind of such, it's sort of mystical, but it's also poetic. It's sort of understandable and it's sort of difficult to understand and you can actually go back to it over and over again it's actually by contrast a very small slim volume and because we were talking about it, one of the best translations of it is the translation by Ursula Le Guin of the book of the way the Tao Te Ching and it's uh you know for me it was one of those places as I was writing the book and as I think actually longer in my life a place just to sort of go and, you know, even if you just kind of read a couple of lines or half a page, it will set in motion a kind of thought process that will enrich your day, and sometimes puzzle you and intrigue you, but also sometimes comfort you in the sense of the resource of all that wisdom still flowing. What is it? 5,000 years later, almost. That's awesome. I got to look for that. Um, so I, drops are, I feel like this is a sneaky segment for me because I use it as much for my own like growing library and thought starters as I think our listeners do, but I'm always appreciative of them. And that sounds like an awesome one to check out. So Tim, I got you out with five minutes to spare yeah, <laughs> on, thanks. on the extra time and the book again, post-growth life after capitalism, Tim Jackson. It was a wonderful conversation. It's I really appreciate great to you being with me on the deep dive. Yeah. Thank you very much for having me. You can listen to the deep dive via Apple podcasts and our website, thedeepdivepod.com. Download, subscribe, listen, and share. If you like what you're hearing and enjoy what me and the team are putting together, then leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. You can follow me on Twitter via at farflungphil. To all my listeners, wherever you are in the world, I thank you. See you on the other side.